0: Why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 3, if you are new here, if you haven't been around for the past month and a half or so, like a lot of you may or may not have with uh, the holidays, get back in a new rhythm. Uh, if you guys don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. We have ushers that would love to get you guys a Bible. Acts, chapter 3, is where we're at. We're going to pick it up in verse 17, uh, down about verse, uh, I don't know, 20 or so, something like that, 21. 21. Um, give you a quick little backstory. So we've been in the book of Acts for the past several months and we've been looking at it chapter by chapter and verse by verse and just letting God speak to us. Uh, we took a little bit of a break over Christmas time to focus on and study to look at the life of Jesus, um, particularly what we would call Advent, but we're getting back into the book of Acts. So uh, the story of Acts chapter three is kind of an interesting story. And there's a lot of reasons why I think it just strikes me as an interesting one. I think for one is just that it's a normal, typical Uh, story of their life. It's just kind of a snapshot into the day in the life of the early church. So backstory would be what happened prior to that was Jesus, if you're familiar with the life of Jesus, he uh, dies on the cross, is resurrected, and all of a sudden this movement of people that were following Jesus, they went from being cowardly and afraid and terrified of the authorities to being this movement that was really unstoppable. It was, it was, unable to be uh, quelled or stopped or managed um, by the authorities, by the ruling leaders and the scribes and the religious group in that day. It was just sort of this, this movement that took on a life of itself. And this has always perplexed scholars and historians and raised the question, why? How is it possible that this thing became this unstoppable movement? And most scholars, best scholarship I would say, would recognize it's because Jesus rose again from the dead. It actually happened. It wasn't just a figment of people's imagination. It just wasn't a widely spread uh, story or um, a teaching or an idea. It actually happened, that the church literally was fueled and motivated by this event, that Jesus died, that he rose again, and that he ascended into heaven, that God was doing something. So uh, the church in the book of Acts, which is really the story of the community of Jesus' people, after Jesus lived, after Jesus went to heaven, that's what the story of the book of Acts is all about. So we see people basically just living about their everyday normal lives, but living intentionally, living in a way in which their eyes are wide open to the possibilities. I mean, look, if you lived in the first century and you just saw the impossible happen, meaning someone died and rose again from the dead, is not anything possible now? And that's the way the church lived. There's just like, anything's possible. God can do anything. There's nothing impossible for God. Uh, We saw God take our savior, our teacher, our rabbi, Jesus, who was dead, crucified, and raise him again from the dead. We saw him. We hung out with him. We ate fish with him. We know that he's alive. So they were just living their everyday life with this expectancy that God is powerful and able to do things that were completely unexpected. And so what we see in the book of Acts is just this unfolding drama or storyline of group of people who are devoted followers of Jesus, who were living within this realm of possibilities that God can intervene and God can do great things that they would have never expected or imagined. So that's what we begin to see. So in the book of Acts chapter 3, this is where we're at, the early church followers, disciples, Peter and John in particular, these guys were part of the early church. They were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, which again, because they were Jewish, they still continue to follow these traditions of Judaism. And so uh, they were just typically going into praying mode as most Jews would do. And as they're going up, they notice there's a guy. He's a a beggar. He also happens to be uh, incapable of walking or Or lame, the way some of your translations might describe it, which just meant that he was crippled. So he was unable to walk, unable to move. In fact, he was completely dependent upon other people. So for over three decades, perhaps, this guy was brought to this temple, unable to ever get into the temple, because there were prohibitions against people that were unable to walk, to go into the temple and worship God. So this guy would have been familiar, hanging out there. People would have seen him. Maybe many people would have known him, but they would have been familiar with this guy that was always begging for money. And the way they would have begged for money back in that day is basically the vernacular of the day would have been um, uh, show mercy, have mercy upon me. That was their way of basically saying show some form of kindness to me by way of money. So Peter and John, they come to this guy and they said, we don't have any silver or gold or any money or coinage, but what we do have, we give you in the name of Jesus. So they reach out their arm and they asks the guy to walk or to stand up. The guy stands up and doesn't just simply walk, but begins to leap and jump and praise God. And he begins to go into the Temple Mount, something he would have never been capable or never even been able or welcomed to do up until that point. So you can imagine this is a massive commotion. So you can imagine there's hundreds, perhaps thousands of people that are watching this, observing this guy that would have been there for three decades, completely incapable, unable to do anything on his own, Now, he's not just standing, not wobbling, but he is leaping, jumping, and praising God, going into the temple to worship God. First time in his entire life. So the question naturally arises, what happened, right? This is the question that you would have asked or myself would have asked. How did this happen? How did this take place? And that's when Peter and John begin to respond to the questioners that are asking how in the world did this happen? So the punchline really is Jesus is the one that does this. And Jesus is the one that actually made this guy who was once lame and incapable of walking whole so that he can now walk, leap, praise God, and enter into the temple. So we're gonna pick it up about verse 17. I'll read and then we'll jump right in. Verse 17 says this as Peter begins to speak. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. He's just got finished by saying that this Jesus is the one that made him walk, but Jesus... Uh, you guys are all familiar with them because you all killed him. Uh, and, G- and, and Peter is basically saying, but I know you did it ignorantly, meaning you, you didn't know, you didn't have the full information, though it was available to you through the scriptures. You didn't act accordingly to it. He is just simply saying that you guys acted in ignorance, which is kind of an interesting thing because he's writing to people that were religious, meaning they were deeply familiar with the scripture. In other words, all the information... Uh, was actually readily available to them. However, they missed the big E on the I-chart, which the the reality is this. Sometimes some of the most dangerous positions you can be in in your life is if you are deeply religious, meaning if you know a lot about God or if you were brought up in a family that had a lot of Christian background and information, or you know about the gospel, or you have a grandma that loved Jesus, or a family member that is deeply passionate, deeply committed to God, and you have enough information about God to the point where you're just bored with it, that could be one of the most dangerous positions for you at all, because Jesus has just become something of routine. He's not something of great significance, not something of great importance. And that's the way these people were, that they were familiar with Scripture. They were familiar with Yahweh. They're familiar with the ways of Judaism. But they missed Jesus. They missed the very person of life, himself, the God of life, himself. And that's what Peter's saying. But I know you guys do this ignorantly. And then he goes on to describe. He says, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that this Christ would suffer... He has thus fulfilled. In other words, God has fulfilled the Scripture. So, again, another thing to consider is that Peter is basically elevating this thing we call the Bible, the Scripture, to a very, very high level. The question we oftentimes have to wrestle with and ask is how do you think about the Scripture? Is the Bible just simply some irrelevant book to be tossed out? And I realize the Bible is not an easy book to read. There's a lot of questions that the Bible raises, and a lot of times Christians have a tendency, we're all guilty of it, of cherry picking certain verses, and choosing ones that we like, and we prefer over others, and other ones that are a little bit more controversial, or difficult to understand, we just kind of toss out, and oftentimes what that can leave us, is sort of with this conglomeration of information that we just kind of push it all to the side, and we just simply say, Jesus is great, I like God, he's good, but the Bible, so confusing, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Now, would suggest. That type of perspective is very foreign to New Testament followers of Jesus. In fact, it's totally foreign to Jesus. Jesus always quoted the scripture. Um, the, the Bible basically was the bread and butter of Jesus' life. It was the very words that Jesus breathed in and read and fed upon and lived upon. It was, the, it was the very substance of life for Jesus, he was always turning to him. So if you are a follower of Jesus and you're like, Jesus, I like the Bible, I just can't stand. It's a weird, antiquated book. And I would suggest you're, you're not following closely enough the life of Jesus because that's not how Jesus treated the Bible. And that's not how the early apostles and the followers of Jesus would have treated the Bible. They saw the Bible as this storyline. Now, we oftentimes think of the Bible as one book. It is, in a sense, to some degree, one book, but it is actually more so right, I think, to think of the Bible as a library of 66 books. It's a library. It's a very large, very big book that was written over many, many centuries by many, many different authors on different continents, but it all contains one single storyline. And this is what, and how the New Testament followers of Jesus would have seen the Bible. And so, again, what he's saying is that Jesus is actually the fulfillment of this long history of Scripture. And Jesus has done everything that God foretold through the Scripture, through the mouth of the prophets that God would do. Again, so a very really high value of the Scripture. And then he says in verse 19, Repent, therefore, and turn back from your sins, so that they might be blotted out, and that times of refreshing might come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, or the appointed one, appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets. So it's an interesting thing to me as I read this that what really Peter's describing is he's looking at sort of this case study, the case study of this man who was for the past three decades, 30 plus years or so of his life, unable to walk, now completely made whole. In other words, he's basically pointing to him and saying, look, you guys are asking questions. What happened to this guy? And how is it possible that he's able to walk and leap and praise God and be welcomed in to be part of the actual life of the people of Israel, even though he was never able to be part of that? And what Peter is saying is that the reason why this is happening right now is because of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is coming to bring or he came to bring salvation to this man. It's really the big word. Now, I've got to unpack a little bit the concept of the word salvation, Um, A lot of times in Christian circles, we have certain vocabulary of words that we use. And sometimes that vocabulary, the vocabulary of words, oftentimes gets overused to the point where it doesn't doesn't hit us the right way. Sometimes this has led some segments of Christian uh, communities to basically describe it as Christianese. You know, uh, Christians have their own language. We call it Christianese, right? We use big words, phrases that to the rest of the world, they're like, doesn't make any sense. There's so many funny YouTube videos out there of showing Christians using Christianese and, and you can watch those on your own time, but they're really funny. And in some ways, they are totally, they make sense. Because the fact of the matter is, is that yes, Christians do have their own vocabulary. I mean, we say things like, Isn't it, aren't we all just so blessed? And you know, in some ways, Christianese is, is, is lame to some degree. But in some ways, Christians should not be apologetic about the fact that we have our own vocabulary. It shouldn't be shocking to us Because the fact of the matter is, is that every uh, group or subgroup or context or culture has their own type of vocabulary. So, for example, if you're somebody that's really into computer programming and video games, you have your own type of vocabulary that you use. So, if you were to be engaged in conversation with a guy that's really into wrestling or MMA or fighting or, you know, uh, mountain biking or surfer, um, you would have this incongruity between vocabulary and conversations going on because computer guy, gamer person over here would be talking about all sorts of stuff that is completely opposite and opposed to the surfer guy over here. The surfer guy over here is just like, isn't that tubular and awesome and cool? No surfer talks like that, by the way. Um, But the point of the matter is is that you would have this incongruity because they each have their own type of language in which they use and which the other person doesn't understand. Christians are the same. The problem is, though, is that oftentimes we fail to recognize that we we might use language or phrases that for the most part, uh, the reason why it sounds so abstract or foreign is because it's lost its meaning. So there are many times in which Christians need to breathe new life into the words that are used. So one of those words, I would say, that we need to kind of breathe a new life or a new sense of understanding into is the word salvation. So what does it mean to talk about Jesus is salvation? Jesus brings salvation. It's kind of a phrase that for the most part only has religious connotations. So a lot of times, I think within a westernized Christian understanding, when we say the word salvation, when we say Jesus saves us or Jesus brought salvation to me, there's a tendency I think to think about salvation in terms of Jesus taking me to heaven one day when I die. That statement would not be untrue. It's totally true, but it's not the complete story. So if you think about salvation as being nothing more than Jesus giving you a golden ticket so that when you die, when you breathe your last breath, you're going to go into this other place, this other ethereal zone called heaven, if that's what you think about salvation, then it's incomplete. Just straight up. It's incomplete. It's not 100% accurate. In fact, I'll go so far as to say, uh, to demonstrate that, because if you read, and we're going to be reading through all the passages in the book of Acts, One of the things fascinating is to read the sermons of the New Testament teachers. So when Peter preaches or Paul speaks, one of the things that you'll discover is that you will never find a sermon that comes out of Peter's mouth or Paul's mouth in any way, shape, or form that says anything along the lines of, believe in Jesus and you'll go to heaven when you die. You will not find that. It does not exist in any sermon in the book of Acts. That should be shocking to us because a lot of times when Christians in the modern world, when we talk about salvation, we talk about salvation as being nothing more than going to heaven when you die. So, again, is it wrong to describe it that way? Not necessarily. It's just not incomplete. It's just not complete. So, the question then has to be raised what is salvation? How does New Testament people talk about salvation? That's what I want to look at right now. So, Peter actually gives us three ways to think about what salvation is God doing something. Now, Will someone die, when they die, go to heaven if they are in in Christ? Again, here we're using Christianese again. And if they are in Christ or they're following Jesus, yes, it makes sense. They will be where Jesus is at. If they follow Jesus, when they die, when their physical body is separated from their spirit, yes, they they will be wherever Jesus is at. So Jesus is in heaven, so they will, you know, by All likelihood, be with Jesus. Paul even affirms that. He says to be absent from this body, meaning my spirit being departed from this physical body, I will one day be with Jesus, wherever he's at, wherever that zone we call heaven is. But what salvation is is far more rich, far more beautiful, far more compelling, far more awesome than just simply something that happens to us one day in the future, far beyond when we begin to discover our bodies breaking down. And this is what I want to explore a little bit just in a sermon, the message that Peter gives in three different ways. So first of all, we think of salvation that involves what I would say describe it as reconciliation. It involves some form of reconciliation. Take a look at the passage. Again, I'll pick it up at around verse 17. He says this, And now, brothers, I know that you have acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer, that he fulfilled. He says, repent therefore and turn again so that your sins might be blotted out. So he uses this phrase, your sins might be blotted out. The, the, the picture that he's painting here is that there is a, there's a problem between, or a tension, or a tension point within the relationship between humanity and God. And it's one that's so profound, so bad, that the result of turning to God results in having that stain actually uh, evaporate or turned away or blotted out the way he describes it. This is how bad it is. So he's probably borrowing language from a psalm, Psalm 51. I'll read it to you real quickly. It just says something like this, verses 1 and 2. It's a psalm that might be familiar. Some of you, it was written by a guy, many believe, uh, named King David. Some of you know who he is. And then it's believed that David actually wrote this shortly following his uh, sexual relations with Bathsheba. Remember, if you remember the story, Bathsheba was not his wife. It was somebody else's wife. David had sexual relations with that woman. And it says this in verses one and two. It says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And in this psalm, David's praying to God. He's saying, God, will you wash? Will you cleanse me? Blot out my transgressions. And what David's basically saying is, God, I'm I'm, I'm asking you on the basis of your, it says, steadfast love. Steadfast love is another way of saying your covenantal type of love. So here's what's fascinating about this. David uh, finishes this psalm by recognizing that God has actually forgiven him, that God has blotted out, whatever that is, blotted out his great transgression. But what's fascinating to me is that David is, is confident that God has blotted out his sin on a far inferior covenant. Okay, follow with me for a second. If you're a follower of Jesus, we follow Jesus through a brand new covenant that he leveled with his people. The night before Jesus was betrayed, he breaks bread, gives it to his disciples, he says, a brand new covenant I'm making with you. Not a covenant based upon the blood of bulls and rams and sheep and goats, but my blood. should be shed for you. And if David has his confidence that his sins will be blotted out on an inferior covenant, how much more can we have a confidence that our sins, our offense, our unrighteousness, our sense of war against God can actually be cleansed? So the picture is this, is that we in our natural state have done things against God that amount to, if you want to think of it this way, treason. C.S. Lewis said it really well. It says this, that... Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. Just think about that for a moment. Much of what our culture is basically saying about the condition and state of humanity is that we are people that just given the right amount of information, right amount of wisdom, right amount of meditation, right amount of self-inspection, right amount of self-realization, then somehow, some way we can actually improve upon this thing called broken humanity. But what C.S. Lewis is actually saying is that imperfect creatures, uh, we're not just people that just need improvement. That we do need that. He says, but really at the end of the day, we are people that are rebels that need to really lay down our arms. So what C.S. Lewis is tapping into is really what the psalmist is saying here. What actually Peter is describing here is that we as human beings are not just people that need to have some form of fix upon our brokenness. That we really are rebels that for the most part have given God our middle finger. That's who we are as human beings. And that brokenness, that destruction, that ruin between us and God is is our attempt to try to emancipate ourselves from any type of linkage or relationship together whatsoever with God. And that has led to this breach, this fissure, this brokenness. And so what salvation, first of all, described, according to Peter, is that salvation means when you turn to God or do what C.S. Lewis describes, you wave the white flag, you put down your arms, and you say, I give up, you'll have your sins blotted out. That stain, that defilement, that sense of feeling like something is not right between you and God can actually be made whole again. That's what Peter, I think, is describing That salvation is. Secondly, it's not only reconciliation to God as well as others, because it also carries over into those that bear God's image. So this is one of the only reason why First John, I won't we'll get too much into it, but First John talks a lot about, look, how can you say that you love God and yet you are constantly in battle against other people who actually bear God's image? <laughs> John's whole point is that, look, you claim to love God who you cannot see, and yet you are always at war and enmity and creating battles and offenses against people who you can see? John's whole point is that, look, you, you don't understand what it means to be reconciled to God and to others. It means that healing begins to happen between you and God by having your sins blotted out, but also begins to trickle over into other relationships you have with other people, whereby you're able to say and invite people in to say, I'm sorry, and you're able to say, I forgive you, and begin to see repair in those areas where there was nothing but breach and brokenness. So first of all, we see that salvation involves reconciliation. Secondly, we also see that Salvation does involve a sense of, what I'll just say, refreshing. It's the word that's actually used here in the passage. And it's an interesting word because it's the only time, there's actually two words that we'll look at next, uh, that only appear in this entire passage and no other part in the New Testament. And that's challenging because if you are someone that's translating the Bible, for example, from the original language, Greek, into the English, it's always helpful to have... Um, multiple types of passages that you can borrow from to try to get your understanding to what a particular word means. So because there's no other passages throughout the entire New Testament that actually uses Greek word, it presents some challenges. So we're forced to kind of look at some other broader ways to understand what these words mean. So he uses this word, refreshing. So listen to this again, verse uh, 19. He says, repent therefore and turn again so that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So, times of Refreshing. Um, what does it exactly mean, time of refreshing? That particular word used, refreshing, some have actually described it as uh, one that comes from a uh, recovery of breath, or another way of thinking about it figuratively is the idea of revival, taking a life that is uh, uh, broken and destroyed and breathing a new sense of life into it. It's kind of the idea of what uh, breath of life is. If you think of it this way, much of our lives is lived to where we are oftentimes out of breath. Right? I mean, we often have even use language like, I can't even catch my breath. Life is so fast-paced and so crushing and so oppressive and so many fears and so many types of imbalances in my life. I can't even catch my breath. And what salvation does as well is that God comes to us and breathes life into our lifelessness. That's what happens with this guy. This guy was living under the crushing weight of his own physical maladies. You can only imagine if you can put yourself in this guy's place. I mean, again, if if you were Jewish and the center part of your entire existence, your social identity was being accepted in the temple, right? So if you were a good Jew, part of being a part of the social community meant that you would go daily into the temple and pray and worship and offer sacrifice. But here's this guy, always just, just on the on the outskirt of Entering in completely. I mean, some of you guys kind of feel that in your life on a regular basis. You always feel like you're just about at the edge of the door, but you're never able to fully enter in, never fully become a part of this community. This is how this guy was. And now, all of a sudden, his entire life has been changed. He is not just simply on the outskirts anymore. He is fully embraced and welcomed into this relationship, this community, this fellowship whereby he enters now for the very first time his entire life into the very temple itself. In other words, God has breathed new life into his lungs. Refreshing. That's what he's describing, that God has breathed a time of refreshing upon this guy's life. And finally, salvation, I think, also does imply not only reconciliation between God and others, not only this time of refreshing that God breathes life into this person, but also this sense of restoration. Listen to what the passage again says. Verse 20, it says, And that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Christ appointed to you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets. So whatever this restoration of all things is, whatever it is, uh, Peter tells us that this is actually foretold, spoken of by the prophets. In other words, what Peter, again, is doing is affirming the great validation of the Scripture. That we love the Scripture, is what he's saying. We, we, we find our lives is not just simply creating a new story or a new religion. We're actually really part of this ancient story that comes by way of the mouth and the prophecies of these people called the prophets. So however they envisioned and foresaw the future, what Peter's saying is that, they foresaw a future that would one day go from a status of being broken and disconnected to being made whole. Again, this is another word that is only used here in the entire New Testament. Um, it's a word that really denotes, as is written up here, a complete restoration of health, restoring something to its proper place, like a dislocated joint. So it's kind of a, uh, a, a medical type of a term to describe a body that was once out of joint or disconnected, or an arm that was out of joint, Um, into where there's pain, you're not able to operate or move or function normally as a typical normal human being because you have these problems with your body, but then all of a sudden going from a place where everything is dislocated to being and having everything rightly located. And that's what he means by times of refreshing. One of the ways in which Josephus, he was a a first century um, writer and historian, and he had chronicled much of the history of the people of Israel. He wasn't Christian Uh, for all that we know, but he had written about um, Israel and their history, their long history, and he actually uses this word. So this is where it's helpful for us to understand a little bit how this word is used. And the way that Josephus actually uses this word is to uh, use it in the context of Israel coming home from exile. Think about that. Think about being somebody that has been on the outskirts of home, all right? I don't know what type of relationships you have with family, or mom or dad, or other family members, Uh, but you know, especially kind of post-holidays, if you are somebody that doesn't have family nearby, or if you have risks within your family and things are not good, you know that there's that sense of nostalgia, longing, desire. You want something, but you can never really grasp it, because you're not allowed access to it. In other words, things are out of place, out of joint, and what uh, Peter's saying is that we know, according to scriptures, that one day God is going to put back to right that which is completely wrong. He says it's a time of restoration. And it's what the prophets describe. And I'll finish with this to think about this. Because, next slide, um, the Bible tells us that God so loved the world, that he sent his son not to condemn the world. And a lot of times we tend to think of this world as being so bad, so messed up, and it is. I mean, I don't in any way, shape, or form want to try to... Uh, make it sound better than it is. It's messy. We live in a broken world, but the tendency for a lot of Christians is to think that somehow God's aim is to simply stake a condemned sign out front of it and say, I'm done with it. It's over. My relationship with this broken, messed up, ruined world is to walk away from it and be done with it. And one of these days, the greatest hope that you as a Christian can have is I will rescue you, remove you from this condemned place, and I'll rush you off to some other ethereal world. And that is not at all what the scripture teaches. In fact, quite the opposite, that God actually loves this broken, messed up world, that he doesn't condemn it. But he actually sets out to move into that neighborhood that is so deeply broken and messed up and disjointed with the aim of setting it right, with the aim of bringing healing, With the aim of restoring. That's exactly what Peter means. Is that God, according to the prophets, has always promised that one day he will set to right that which is broken and messed up and ruined. And here's a couple ways in which the passages of the scripture would narrate this. Um, Isaiah chapter 11 Listen to what Isaiah says. So Isaiah was a prophet, and he was envisioning about 700 years before Jesus. So again, uh, he wouldn't have been familiar with Christ other than what God had spoken to him through his writings and how he would write these things, and here's what he says. So he envisions a time, imagines a time when somehow God will put this broken world to right, and here's what he envisions. He says, in that day, whenever that day is, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat, and the calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion and a little child will lead them all. Nothing will hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, for as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with the people who know the Lord. Other translations say, be filled with the glory of God. Uh, Isaiah 11.10 says this, in that day the heir of David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all of the world. The nations will rally to him, and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. Next slide. So if you think about this, this is what, Isaiah the prophet's envisioning that one day God is going to put this broken world back to right. He's going to bring healing. He's going to restore that which is completely out of place. And then the prophet, there's just a couple of things to think about, consider this. That God didn't say that he would ultimately make all new things. We tend to think of that. Like, God is so done with this world. I mean, don't, don't misunderstand me. God hates the sin, hates the rebellion that's within this world. Hates the fact that there's sin and the way we operate, the way we act towards each other oftentimes. It just brings brokenness and pain and uh, destruction and complexity to our relationships. But God's aim is not to simply create all new things. In fact, quite the opposite. He will make all things new. Which means he will take that which is broken and corrupt and corrupt the and breathe new life into it. How do we know this? Because of an event that we would call the Death of Jesus, followed by the resurrection. That Jesus resurrected in a physical body. This is absolutely significant and important to the whole story. Because Paul would later write about this. He would say, look, as Jesus died and rose again, so will all those who follow Jesus follow suit. In other words, Paul would use language that's familiar to Jewish people. He would say, Jesus is the firstborn, the, the first fruits of all creation. In other words... As what happened to Jesus, so will also happen to jesus people, jesus followers, so in other words, Jesus resurrects not in an ethereal ghostly body, but in a physical body. we know it 's physical because the very first thing that Jesus does when he rises again from the dead is he gathers together with his disciples look i 'm really hungry. does anybody have any fish? So he begins to eat. Why is this significant? Because it tells us very clearly that whatever type of body Jesus is in. After his death and resurrection, it gets hungry. It's satisfied by food. It's in location. It's real. It lives. It breathes and it has being. So you live in a world that is broken, deeply broken. It's subject to sickness and death and disease, dis ease, that word, disease, meaning there's not ease in your life. It's disease. it's the opposite of. Ease. It's brokenness. And the claim, the hope, the promise of the scripture of Jesus is that he will undo that which is diseased and broken and dislocated and prone to dismemberment and all these things of disintegration, that he promises to undo this by making all things new. Last passage I'll read is out of the book of Revelation. Here's what he says Then I saw a new heaven, new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, come down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, Anymore for the former things. In other words, those things that were a part of this present world that's riddled by disease, brokenness, sin, death. Jesus says it will be undone. Death will be undone and give way to life. And he finishes this little statement in verse 5. He says, and he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Just think about it this way. This proclamation comes not from God who's pacing around in heaven like, what should I do? It's coming from a God who's seated on a throne. He's absolutely confident about what he's about to state and what he's about to say, that behold, I make all things new. That no matter what types of things define us today, those that are in Christ, those that follow this Christ have this hope It's not some sort of vapid optimism. It's hope that because God raised Jesus from the dead, those who follow this resurrected Jesus in like fashion, the same that happened to Christ will also happen to us. That all pain, all disease, all suffering, all hurt, all brokenness will be undone in Christ. That's the hope of future restoration. So how do we know all this is going to happen? I alluded earlier to the fact that David had this hope that somehow he would engage and discover the salvation of God. David's hope was based upon a far inferior covenant, as I already mentioned. And what we have in Jesus, the reason why we know that God will do what God promised to do, is because on the cross what we have is a picture of Jesus who subjected himself, not by running from the pain and the hurt, and the disorientation of brokenness and sin in this world and corruption, but by running straight into the pain and corruption and destruction and brokenness and disorientation and fully embracing it. Because on the cross, what we see is a picture of God coming undone. We see a picture of God breathing his last life, breath of life, departing from the life giver himself. Why? Why? Well, the New Testament tells us it's because this is a picture not just of a God doing his duty, but this is a picture of a God who takes great delight in doing this because he's driven and motivated by love. It's that great passage. So we all love the quote. We all love to see John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave, gives a son. Not departs, not places a condemned sign, but gives his son to this brokenness, with the hope, with the promise of bringing and delivering salvation, this is the message that Peter and John and the others in the New Testament brought and declared. And this is the one that we receive and we worship God according to. And this is the one I want to invite you to receive and be swept up into this morning. So no matter where you're at, no matter what types of circumstances, no matter how unbelievable this message may be, my hope. Would be that you would enter in to at least want to believe it. Because that's that's the beginning basis of leading towards confidence and faith in it in God. Some of you, again, may be overwhelmed by great tragedies and hardship and disease within your life. And the invitation to you is to come to this God who offers to give you life, to blot out your transgressions, to clear the slate, to breathe life into your lifelessness, and to restore that which is out of place, out of joint, that's broken. So we're going to respond. We'll respond by way of singing, by way of partaking of communion, by way of prayer. It's a way by which we turn our hearts to understand and worship and respond to God. By loving him, by crying out to him, by asking God to help us in maybe our helpless state, by asking God to forgive us if you feel overwhelmed by your own, brokenness, and your own sinfulness in your own life. So why don't we all respond by standing, we'll sing, um, partake of communion together as a church family. Sound good? Let's all stand. me we pray. We'll sing. And if you're here this morning, anything's going on in your life, you need prayer, as always, we have people that are going to be off to the side that would love to pray for you. We have some rugs in the front if you just want to come out from where you're sitting, if you just want to get before God and sit down or be on your knees or respond to God in a way that's representative of your heart. And we have communion in the back as well as in the front. Uh, It's a tangible way of reminding ourselves to the depths to which God would descend to bring about healing to our brokenness. That he himself would be broken. He himself would have his blood poured out shed for us. So that we who are broken and feel as if we are constantly having our blood leached out of us. Daily by the daily grind of life could actually be given life. So I invite you to come approach this God. Cast the way the Bible says, cast your cares on Him, because He cares for you. So, God, thank you for your great love. And we respond in worship. Casting on you, God. We ask for your mercy, just like that beggar did. Have mercy on us.